Hi, uh, my name is Irene, uh, and I am here to share my testimony with you. Uh, but I'm nervous, so I need to pray a little bit first. Um, thank you, uh, Heavenly Father, for being almighty and giving all of us our own testimony, your story in our lives. And I pray that your Holy Spirit in me will calm me down and give me the right words to say today. Amen. Uh, so when I think of testimonies, my head quickly goes to stories of success, which means that my life was bad, God did a miracle, and now I have it all together. I am a good Christian. Uh, I have learned, however, that my story, my testimony, is not like that at all. Uh, but it is, however, a story of a God who uh, loves me with an undescribable love and who embraces me no matter how much I fail him. So uh, before I was born, my family had already been through what I can only describe as hell on earth, uh, and it left them broken and uh, wounded, deeply wounded. However, my family is also the kind of family that thinks being weak uh, and sensitive uh, and being fragile are bad qualities. So when I grew up, uh, we had to be strong. We had to uh, um, look like we were good, like we had, had it all together. Uh, and for 18 years, I was pretty good at that. Uh, on the outside, I, I looked like a pretty decent Christian. Uh, but on the inside, all the hurt had caused me to be very bitter and prideful because uh, by my standards and probably by the word, world standards, I, have any, I had every reason to be. Uh, so I knew all the right words inside to justify those feelings, but on the outside, I knew all the right words to hide them. Uh, see, because I thought that be, if I showed my weakness, I wasn't representing God the right way, because Christians should reflect the joy of the Lord, right? So I was supposed to be happy. Uh, after 18 years, I kind of gave up on that, and that looked really bad and ugly for a little bit. And then about five years ago, uh, for the first time in my life, which was weird because I grew up in a Christian family, I was introduced to a personal God. Uh, I was introduced to a father who is close, who's right here with me, next to me. He's actually like a daddy role. Uh, and since then, he has spent those years redefining who he is and who I am to him. Uh, he has taught me that his Holy Spirit is alive and active. It's the same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead, is alive and active in me today. He has uh, taught me that he wraps his arms around me even when I try to get away. Uh, and he, has, um, he tells me in his word that all I need to do is to be still and know that he is God. And that should be enough. Because while I am still, he says that he fights his battles for me. And he tells me that it's good to be weak for some reason, because then he can be my strength. Uh, and when I lose faith or hope, or I'm being very unfaithful to him, he doesn't change. He always remains faithful to me. Uh, 
And he also told me that it was okay to be me, sensitive and broken on the inside. Because uh, the flesh, me, I fail, but that doesn't define me. The spirit within me is what defines me. Uh, and I have learned that behind every mistake that I've made and still make, there has been pain that caused that mistake. So when God says that he wants to save me from my sin or from my mistakes, he doesn't say that because he wants me to look like a better Christian or he wants me to represent him better. He says that he, was, he wants me to do better because he wants to heal the pain from the inside. Uh, that he wants me to be free from the pain that causes me to make those mistakes. Um, and even in all of this, even knowing all of this, I still get caught up trying to make my life look well put together. Uh, I hide my brokenness and my weakness, and I try to look strong. Uh, because somehow I convince myself that if I am good, he will be more proud of me. Uh, or if I do good, he will more, he's more likely to answer my prayers. Uh, which in reality is basically me not giving Jesus credit for what he did on the cross. Uh, but one thing that has changed, and uh, what I do know now, is that I have a father who, was who will always be there to remind me of the truth when all those lives keep coming back. And he will never give up on me. Uh, and he tells me the truth of who he is and who I am to him. And I'm him. His. I am his. And I always will be. Uh, even when I don't have it all together. Even when I do fail him. I'm always his. Uh, and as I'm getting to know him better. As I learn more about him and his power in me. Uh, I'm noticing that the bitterness and the brokenness is very slowly fading away. Uh, and it's being replaced with forgiveness and love. Uh, so on the outside, someone who knew me 10 years ago would probably say that I probably look more like, more like a mess right now than I did 10 years ago. But on the inside, the healing has begun for real. And God's ways seem to work a lot slower than my own effort did on the outside. But it truly is the only way that restores completely uh, on the inside. Um, and to end it, I wanted to read a verse to you guys that has meant a lot to me in this process, and it's in 1 Corinthians 1.26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Thank you. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your presence, the promise that where two or three are gathered together in your name, there you are in the midst of us. 
And Lord, uh, Irene's story, how powerful. And it's powerful because it's a story of your character. She's testifying to your reality and your goodness in her life and the difference it's making. And so uh, those of us who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, our hearts thrill at that kind of a testimony. And we share in it. We can't help but share in it. We've experienced you. We love you. Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen. So we're, we've been studying world religions. Actually, we've covered all the big religions. There are six of them. We've already done Hinduism, Buddhism, Confucianism, Taoism, Judaism, Islam. And so, so we're done with the big six. Today we're dealing with skepticism. Uh, skepticism, uh, I've chosen not to preach on atheism because really only about 3% of Americans claim that they are convinced there is no God. They claim to be atheists. Although atheism is technically a religion, in 1961 the U.S. Supreme Court labeled it a religion and thus getting the protections of religion. And in 2005, uh, a lower U.S. Uh, court uh, again affirmed that uh, atheism is a religion. But I want to I broaden and just talk about skepticism. So you have atheists on one hand, you've got agnostics, those who say, uh, I don't claim to know for sure there's no God, but I highly doubt there, there is one. And then uh, the rest of the skeptics, the majority of skeptics who just say, I don't even think the God question is worth my time and energy, and they live like they're atheists. And atheism, or I should say skepticism, is on the rise in America in 2014, the Pew Research Council did a uh, study in which they found 22.8% of Americans are, have no religious affiliation. Religion has no part of their lives at all. And that's up from only seven years earlier, 2007, it was only 16.1%. So uh, skepticism is exploding in our country. In fact, as Christians, we are far more likely to encounter a skeptic than somebody who practices another religion. And so I thought it was uh, worth us taking some time to examine, you know, why are skeptics skeptics? And uh, why don't they feel uh, compelled to worship God and follow his son, Jesus Christ? So there are four primary challenges that skeptics make toward the Christian worldview, toward Christian theism. And the first is the challenge of science. Skeptics say, listen... God is no longer necessary to explain our, our world. Uh, the theory of evolution is an adequate explanation for the origin of everything, and so we don't, even, we don't need God anymore in the conversation. Now, it's understandable that primitive man, when faced with mystery, would appeal to God and the supernatural as an explanation. But we are modern scientific people, and we know that behind every mystery... There is a scientific explanation. So God's not even, God's not necessary anymore for our understanding of the universe. Second is the challenge of history. Uh, skeptics say, come on, Christians. Uh, you cannot really believe, uh, expect us to believe the stories of the Bible. I mean, you've got a virgin giving birth. People walking on water. You've got angels and demons fighting each other. Somebody who's even supposedly risen from the dead. That stuff does not happen. Modern scientific people cannot believe the stories of the Bible. They are just simply too incredible. 
third uh, challenge the skeptics often make is the uh, challenge of evil. Okay, Christians, you claim that God is all good and all powerful, and yet there's evil in the world. If God were all good, he would not allow evil. If God were all powerful, he'd be able to stop evil, and yet there's evil in the world. So either God must not be all good or God must not be all powerful or most likely there's just no God, which is why we have evil. And then the uh, final objection skeptics often make toward Christian theism is uh, the challenge of divine presence. If there's a God, where is he? Why can't we see him? You Christians claim that uh, God is interested in us, then why is he so hidden? Where's the evidence? If God exists and wants to be known, why in the world doesn't he just reveal himself more obviously to us? If there's a God, where is he? Uh, in fact, uh, the atheist Norwood Russell Hansen once said this. He said, listen, let me tell you what God could do in order to convince me that he exists. Suppose that next Tuesday morning, just after breakfast, all of us in this one world are knocked to our knees by a percussive and earth-shattering thunderclap. Snow swirls, leaves drop from the trees, the earth heaves and buckles, buildings topple, towers tumble, the sky is ablaze with an eerie silver light. And just then, as all the people of this world look up, the heavens open, the clouds pull apart, revealing an unbelievably immense and radiant-like Zeus figure towering above us like a hundred Everests. He frowns darkly as lightning plays across the features of his Michelangeloid face. He then points down at me and explains for every man and child to hear, I have had quite enough of your too clever logic chopping and word watching in matters of theology. Be assured, N.R. Hansen, that I most certainly do exist. According to Mr. Russell Hansen, that would convince him that God exists. <laughs> what would God have to do to convince you that he exists? Famous uh, atheist philosopher Bertrand Russell once was once asked, now, if upon dying you discover there is a God and he asks for you, uh, demands of you an account for your unbelief on earth, what are you going to tell him? Bertrand quipped, not enough evidence, God, not enough evidence. I want to talk a moment about evidence. Uh, my dad was a prosecuting attorney here in Anchorage for over 20 years. And the fact of the matter, there are guilty people walking free, even murderers, because of uh, something called inadmissible evidence. There are murderers walking free for, from, from whom we have confessions of their guilt, but the court labeled those confessions inadmissible evidence, and so the jury never heard it. And because of this category, inadmissible evidence, and I'm not saying we shouldn't have that category, uh, but the result is that uh, sometimes the truth is suppressed. And sometimes faulty verdicts are reached. And many of our skeptical friends 
label a whole bunch of evidence for the existence of God. They just, they ignore it. They sideline it. They claim it's inadmissible. Because skeptics uh, like Bertrand Russell say, the only evidence we will consider in the discussion is evidence that can be verified by the scientific method. But it seems to me that God has a right to reveal himself to his creation however he wishes. And the Bible says that one of the primary ways God has revealed himself is in history. And history is not repeatable, therefore it is not verifiable according to the scientific method. But God, the Bible tells us, God has throughout human history revealed himself Powerfully, think about Mount Sinai and lightning and thunder and God speaks forth out of the, I mean, there he is. That's pretty powerful evidence. And then God went to the, uh, went to the extent of recording that self-revelation in the Bible and preserving the Bible so that we can read about it today. God revealed himself uh, to prophets and in many mirac- miracles and ultimately he revealed himself in the incarnation of his son, Jesus Christ. But all of that happened in the past and is not verifiable through the scientific method because it can't be duplicated. And so our skeptical friends say, all of that data, all of that evidence is you know, inadmissible. It's off limits. We can't discuss it. And yet it is tremendous evidence for the existence of God. In fact, let me say that as Christians, um, rather than asking the question, you know, is there, can we discover evidence in the natural world for the existence of God? Maybe we should be asking, is there any reason we shouldn't believe what the Bible tells us? Is there evidence that would cause us to doubt what the Bible says God has said and done in times past? So let's go back to these four uh, primary challenges of the skeptics. First is the the challenge of science. And to our skeptical friends, uh, we ask this. Uh, How is it that, how does evolution explain matter? It's one thing to say evolution can explain how matter formed itself into uh, complex organisms through the process of natural selection. But where did matter come from? And there's a whole lot of matter out there in the universe. Usually stuff doesn't just come from nothing. There's usually a, a, a cause. And so we Christians say, you know, we don't seem to be uh, crazy, uh, to be thoughtless, to suggest that in the beginning, God created. And that's the Christian teaching. Ex nihilo, out of nothing, God formed what is. Secondly, we ask our skeptical friends, uh, how... By the way, how do you explain the apparent design of the universe? You look at a watch, you instantly know there's a watchmaker because the watch is a complex design. You look at the universe, there is, uh, there is plenty of complex design in our natural world. It suggests an intelligent designer. Now, um, our skeptical friends will often say, hey, the process of natural selection explains adequately the apparent design of the universe. Natural selection, just to remind ourselves, uh, in, in nature there are, 
constantly random mutations happening. Some of those mutations are advantageous for the biological organism. Advantageous mutations uh, tend to get passed on. And you add, add it, advantageous mutation added to advantageous mutation. Eventually, uh, we arrive at the world that we see around us, including you and me. However, uh, the process of natural selection does struggle. It, at a minimum, it struggles to explain some of what we see in the natural world, especially as we get new insights in, in regarding microbiology. Let me point out two examples. One is uh, the bacteria flagellum. This is basically the outboard motor for the little bacteria in your body. Uh, there are uh, 41 parts to the bacteria flagellum. All 41 of those parts have to be exactly where they are for the, for the motor to work. 40 parts it won't work, 39 it won't work, all 41. And so some Christian microbiologists say, how does natural selection explain uh, the flagellum? It's the, what, what they would argue is the um, irreducible minimum. All 41 have to be exactly where they are, and so this idea of one adaptation plus another adaptation, and 41 parts all being in the right spot mathematically is so infinitesimally small that Christ, we Christians will say to our skeptical friends, you have to have a heck of a lot of faith to believe that natural selection just la la laid that out. Doesn't it seem a little bit easier to say, hey, uh, there's an intelligent designer who put the flagellum in, into place. One more, just quickly, is DNA. You know, kind of the building blocks of, of life. Well, DNA is not just a molecule, it's a language. DNA has within it a programming code. And it's an it's a extensive programming code that tells the amino acids how to form up and form all the, and that's the ba basic building block of life. Natural selection is hard pressed to explain where that code came from. And we Christians say, hey, uh, doesn't it seem almost a little, a little bit easier to believe that there's an intelligent designer who put that code, programmed that code, and put it into the DNA, and out of that comes the building blocks of life. Now, um, no Christian challenges microevolution, the idea of evolutionary uh, small changes within a species. Many of us, uh, just based on where the fossil record uh, seems to have lots of gaps in it, where is their macro evolutionary change? But you know, not every Christian challenges that. But the bottom line, well, the bottom line is that uh, we maintain that uh, the the natural world actually. It certainly does not suggest that God doesn't exist, and actually, we, we think it gives quite a bit of uh, indications that there is a God. In fact, here's what the Bible says about this. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. God doesn't like it when truth is suppressed. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, 
have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. So Bertrand Russell says to God, not enough evidence, God, not enough evidence. According to the Bible, God would say, yeah, there was. Yeah. Uh, I gave ample evidence of my existence. It could be seen in the natural world. And, and you chose to suppress it because of your unrighteousness. I will hold you accountable for your unbelief. You are without excuse. And that is the Bible's, that's the Bible's testament to the skeptic. I've given you ample evidence. And I will hold you accountable for your unbelief. Well, secondly, this, uh, what about this challenge of history? You know, the Bible is filled with miracles. No uh, crazy stories. No modern person can uh, possibly believe. Well, the answer to that is, look, this is all about a pre... It's a presuppositional question. The only reason the stories of the Bible seem uh, too incredible to believe is because you, you come to the table with a preconceived idea that God cannot act within time and space. But as soon as you say, hey, there's a God in heaven who made a world probably because he was interested in it and he made me and us, and it doesn't seem too crazy that God might want to reveal himself to humans and he might want to act within the world when it serves his purposes. And since he was able to create the world, well, hey, he can suspend the laws of nature sometimes if he wants to. And all of a sudden, the stories of the Bible are not so incredible we can't believe them. They're kind of exciting. Wow, God cares enough to interact in our world. Boy, I wish I had been there. That would have been cool. It's, this is it's purely, it's not evidence against God uh, or the Christian uh, view of reality. It's, it's purely a presuppositional question. In fact, as it relates to history, um, something I like to challenge skeptics with is, can you explain to me why uh, Jesus' 12, uh, the 12 apostles were unanimous in their conviction that they had seen Jesus alive from the dead? Majority of those 12 died for that testimony. In other words, somebody put the sword to the neck and said, recant your claim that you've seen Jesus from the dead or I'll chop off your head. And they said, I can't, go ahead and kill me. People do not die for what they know to be a lie. They don't. And so the only, other, the only other option is that they were deluded. Now, one person being deluded into believing that they had seen something they truly hadn't seen, okay, all 12? It's, you know, historically, you look at that, it, it, you're harder pressed to explain away than you, you know, you only explain that away uh, eyewitness accounts and eyewitness credibility, that is absolutely credible. The only reason you wouldn't believe that testimony is because you have a presupposition that says it can't happen, therefore I will not believe it no matter what the evidence is. Jesus said the resurrection is one of God's ultimate proofs for his existence and the fact that Jesus is his son. Matthew chapter 12, verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered Jesus, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, 
so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And then he didn't stay there. He rose from the dead. And that's what the uh, Christians have been proclaiming from the beginning. Jesus is alive, and so we don't need to fear death. Those who follow him, he has promised to give eternal life. Amen. The third uh, challenge of the skeptic is the challenge of evil. If God is all good and all powerful, why is there evil in the world? Now, first thing I tell my skeptic friends is, hey, I, I partly agree with you. In fact, God promises us that he will someday defeat evil once and for all. It's going to be out of the system, out of the universe's system, out of our lives forever and ever. When Jesus Christ returns, that's one of the things he's going to do. Eliminate evil. Praise God. But right now, God is allowing humans free will. And, and the possibility, evil is a, a necessary possibility when you give humans free will. And it's a reality because humans have exercised that free will for evil purposes. And our world, even our natural world, is broken because of what Adam and Eve did and then ultimately what each and every one of us does. And so right now, God gives us free will so that we can choose to repent of our sins and place our faith in his son, Jesus Christ, and be reconciled to him. And then when Christ returns, we get to live uh, in a completely recreated world where there is no evil. But then we will ask our Christian friends, uh, can I ask you this, our skeptical friends, can I ask you this, um, why, how is it that you recognize evil anyways? And why is it that you uh, are, are, are recoil from evil? And why is it that every person on planet earth seems to have the same understanding of what is right and wrong? In fact, it's the moral law within our hearts that points to a moral lawgiver, the, the presence of evil and our recognition of it and our, and our reaction to it is actually evidence for the existence of God. And that's what the Bible says in Romans chapter 2, verse 14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, it's talking here about the Mosaic law, they do not have the Mosaic law. By nature, do what the law requires. They're a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. Here it is. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. God, the moral lawgiver, has written his law upon the hearts of people. So the presence of evil and our reaction to it, our recoiling from it, uh, is actually a, a evidence for the existence of God, not for the opposite. And finally, uh, to the skeptic's challenge of divine presence, we ask, how do you explain hundreds and millions, hundreds of millions of people on planet Earth, literally hundreds of millions of people, who testify to having a personal relationship with God through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. Because that's the reality. How do you explain Irene standing here testifying to uh, a personal relationship with God? Is Irene diluted? A little nutso? How about the other hundreds of millions? And in Western civilization, uh, I mean, 
pretty much the you know the vast majority of the best and the brightest throughout all Western civilization have claimed to have a personal relationship with God through Jesus. Is this all you know? As Freud said, is it all just daddy longings, <laughs> or could it be? We ask our skeptical friends, could it be? Uh, that we are experiencing something you aren't because of your unbelief. Could it be that there's a reality uh, some people are have tapped into through faith in God's Son, Jesus? Romans chapter 8, verse 14 says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Listen to this. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. When you become a follower of Jesus Christ, the Spirit of the living God indwells you. And the Holy Spirit testifies with your human spirit, you are a child of God. This is why it's very difficult to uh, convince a Christian God does not exist. Because, you know, you, you pull out you, your evidence and the Christian goes, yeah, but, but I just, I know. <laughs> because the Spirit of God is testifying to your spirit that you are his child, that he loves you. He's involved in your life. One other thing I want to point out, which is, uh, you know, throughout human history, Humans are religious. It has been the, the very small minority throughout history of humans who have not been religious. Uh, seeking a relationship with God. Often pursuing it misguided because of the, uh, uh, the blinding of the evil one. But why are, why are humans so religious? And why is it that we, we are so desperate for immortality? Why does it bother us so much, this idea that we're going to die? Well, the Bible tells us uh, in Ecclesiastes 3.11, God has set eternity in the hearts of man. God, uh, the mathematician Pascal said, God has placed a God-shaped void within the hearts of humans. The creator who, who wants a relationship with us puts a longing for himself within us. And a longing for who we really are, eternal creatures. And that, that is, God has put that within us in order, to, uh, in, in order to motivate us to pursue him and ultimately find him through a relationship with his son, Jesus. So one of the big points I want to make today is, listen, we, we Christians are often accused by our skeptical friends of, of having blind faith, as if our eyes are squeezed Shut to the evidence. I'm going to believe despite all the evidence that there is no God. What I want to declare is, no, our eyes are wide open. We are looking at the evidence, and we're saying, I don't see any evidence that causes me to say I should not believe the Bible. And in fact, when I look at, like, even the natural world, I say, it suggests to me that there is a God. We have our eyes open. We don't have blind faith. Final uh, scripture and then a uh, final story. Proverbs 14.1. I'm sorry, Psalm 14.1. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. 
This is not the Bible uh, calling people names in order to win an argument. <laughs> there are, there's a wise person and there's a foolish person. Proverbs 9.10. Uh, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Here's what Psalms is saying. When, whenever a person says to himself or to herself, there's no God, and I'm going to live as if there's no God, that is foolishness. It does not lead you to abundant life. It does not lead you to eternal life. It leads you in, into conflict with your creator. That's why it's foolishness, because it's bad for you. Fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Uh, one person I read pointed out, it doesn't say that the fool believes in his heart, there is no God. He says. And the question was whether or not skepticism is a choice. Final story, uh, this is of Jordan Mong. Uh, she, she attended Harvard about a decade after I did. She... Um, she arrived at Harvard, uh, a convinced atheist with a, a history of debating Christians and crushing them in with their arguments. But she encountered a few Christians at Harvard who uh, had some some explanations for her for her challenges. They had a defense for their faith. They were apologists, not apologizing, apologia, defending the faith. And uh, she was surprised and eventually convinced by their arguments. Let me read the end of her story recorded uh, in, in Christianity Today 2013. She writes, I committed my life to Christ by being baptized on Easter Sunday 2009. This walk has proved to be quite a journey. I've struggled with depression. I would yell, scream, cry at this God whom I'd begun to love but didn't always like. But never once, listen to this, but never once did I have to sacrifice my intellect for my faith. And he blessed me most keenly through my doubt. God revealed himself through scripture, prayer, friendships, and the Christian tradition whenever I pursued him faithfully. Cannot say for certain where the journey ends, but I've committed to follow the way of Christ wherever it may lead. When confronted with the overwhelming body of evidence I encountered, when facing down the living God, it was the only rational course of action. We have reasons to believe as Christians. There is evidence that points to God in his son, Jesus Christ. I came to Harvard seeking very toss, which means truth. Instead, he found me. I'm going to pray. Then we're going to have a, a video, and I just, uh, during the video, I want you to just um, worship your creator and respond as the Holy Spirit prompts you. God, we thank you for your word. Creator, we thank you that you care enough about us, that you, des you desire a relationship with us uh, so that you have revealed yourself through your word and ultimately in the incarnation of your son, Jesus Christ. We respond to you today in faith. Christ, and we pray. Amen.